vampires, witches, and werewolves. Oh my! Dark Visions is a brand new coloring book for adults featuring 30 gothic images inspired by the original illustrations from artist Tiffany Tolan Scott and encompassing her most popular gothic works. Dark Visions offers hours of relaxing coloring fun for the artist or the aspiring artist in your life. Page after page of stunning dark art featuring fallen angels, gothic fairies, bloodthirsty vampires, and more. But time is limited to take advantage of this Kickstarter exclusive limited print run. Drop by Kickstarter before March 12th and for just $12 US, you can receive a signed copy of Dark Visions or get a copy on PDF to download and print on the paper of your choice. Or pick up two coloring books for just $20 US and receive a copy of Dark Visions and Fairies and Mermaids featuring 28 more enchanting coloring pages Enter a world of dark enchantment. Log on to kickstarter.com today and back Dark Visions before Monday, March 12th. Dark Visions, the gothic coloring book by Tiffany Tullin Scott. Only on Kickstarter. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Lyon. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward Hi, I'm Mike Cole, the author of The Armored Saint, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest is the author of the military fantasy Shadow Ops series from Ace Books, including Control Point, Fortress Frontier, and Breach Zone, followed up by the prequel Reawakening Trilogy, including Gemini Cell, Javelin Reign, and Siege Line. In addition to being a badass fantasy writer, our guest has held a variety of professions, including military officer, security contractor, and government civilian, dabbling in fields like cyber warfare, counterterrorism, and federal law enforcement. He served multiple tours in Iraq, served during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in addition to Hurricanes Sandy and Irene, and just last year added TV personality to his resume by being cast in the CBS reality show Hunted. His brand new novella, The Armored Saint, is set to drop this February from Tor.com Publishing, kicking off the first installment in a brand new dark fantasy trilogy. When not writing or growing an epic beard, our guests can be found reading fantasy novels and comic books or playing D&D. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Mike Cole to the show. Mike, thank you for hanging out today. Hey man, thanks for having me. Brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time from your busy writing schedule this Saturday morning to join us on the podcast. Today we're going to talk about uh, your brand new, very cool book, uh, novella, The Armored Saints. We'll talk about beards, we'll talk about shadow ops, and uh, lots of cool things, I'm sure, during our conversation today. So thanks again for dropping by. But yeah, first and foremost, let's just talk about beards and uh, and the, how <laughs> Phil doesn't even have one and just... <laughs> the uh, important stuff first. Yeah, so Phil, um, how long ago was it that you shaved your beard off? Uh, it's about two months ago, so it's kind of of in and out of like kind of shitty beard stage and then kind of 
it's clean shaven, so it's never like uh, you know, cool looking. It's always like weak as fuck beard. Do you find that it's affecting your relationships with other people? Like maybe people are treating you with less deference, less respect, um, you know, than, than, than it was when you had the beard? I do find that people do treat me a little bit differently when I have the beard. Like they look at me a little bit longer, like when they're looking at me. They <laughs> right, kinda... but, but like, but, but when you see their facial expressions during those longer looks, are, are you seeing maybe, you know, like shock, um, you know, maybe, maybe, um, distrust, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, it could, it could be <laughs> you know, mild disgust or some form of that. Look, you know, Phil, I, I just, I just want you to know, and I, I'm sure I speak for Rob here too, that, that we are your friends, whether or not you have a beard, uh, and, and, uh, you know, you, you know, we, we love you for you. Uh, it's yeah. not, it's not the facial hair. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to, uh, I do have a lot of hair on my head though, so maybe I can just like cut some of that off and paste it on like beavis and like, butt head stuff. Do, do like a comb over only like where you just grow the hair on your head down and ah. tie it up. Ah, yeah. something. That's trendy. That'd be sweet. <laughs> well, uh, beards aside, uh, we've got you on the show today to uh, talk books. Mike Cole, you are a um, seasoned author now. You've got uh, two uh, military fantasy trilogies and you've got this brand new trilogy coming out the dark fantasy series the armored saint is the first installment go ahead and tell us a little bit about the book and maybe how you got hooked up with tour.com publishing oh thanks uh so the the series is called the just so people know the trilogy is going to be called the sacred throne is the name of the trilogy um and uh i got hooked up with tour.com because uh i did the the military fantasy shadow ops stuff and i think one of the big selling points on that series was the authenticity at the time i began writing them i was I'm still in uniform, and I think I was, with the exception of Brad Torgerson, um, the only uh, person in service uh, at the time writing. And actually, and Torgerson writes science fiction, if I'm correct. So I was writing fantasy. So I was really the only fantasy writer who was still in uniform at the time. So I was constantly getting all this, oh, my God, it's so authentic. It's so, so real military. And I got that again and again and again and again. And it sort of became a like a thing. And I kind of got insecure and started thinking, well, are people buying my books because I'm a writer with a capital W, you know, a good writer, or are they buying it because it's authentic and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes right now. You know, I'm this real military guy. So I decided, all right, well, look, you know, uh, and I, I really admire guys like, uh, and gals, uh, uh, but people, writers like Jim Butcher, who, you know, he has his Dresden Files, which is the Serban fantasy series, but he also did Codex Alera. And I was like, all right, well, I can do that, too, then. Um, and so I decided I would write a dark fantasy book because at the time and even now, my really my favorite subgenre is the grim dark movement, the sort of Mark Lawrence's, the Joe Abercrombie's, the Scott Lynch's. Yes, I consider Robin Hobb to be grim dark. Everybody disagrees with me on that, but I don't care. So I was like, I'm going to write this. And I wrote a book called The Fractured Girl. Um, and for me, grim dark has always been about you know, beating the, first of all, showing all the gritty reality of life, but also beating the crap out of your, um, your characters to a degree that has not yet been foreseen. But one of the things I also really love about truly, truly bleak books is this kind of before the utter crash, this tiny little lift of the airplane's nose to give a tiny hint of redemption. So I wrote that book and I called it The Fractured Girl. And at the time, uh, Justin Landon, who was a, a, an amazing blogger and a very insightful editor, was beta reading for me uh, just because he is a wonderful guy and was very kind enough to do it for me. And for years working on this book, I couldn't get my agent to take it. 
I couldn't get it out to market because I couldn't get the book right. I couldn't get the voice of the book correct, which was really disheartening when you already have six books under contract. And at the time I had, you know, what, four or five published that you can't write a book well enough to even get your agent to take it out to market. That's really disheartening. And Justin the whole time was beta reading for me. And then he got hired by Tor.com as a consulting editor. And at this point, I was ready to throw the fracture girl in the trash. I was like, all right, look, Mike, you know, you tried. You can't do this. You really are only able to write these military books. It's time for you to give up on this dream of being a bigger writer with more range. And I can't tell you how devastating it was to have to, like, face confront that. And then Justin emailed me and said, hey, man, um, I don't suppose you'd be willing to cut this novel down to a novella and let me look at it again. And maybe I might be interested in buying it for tour.com. And he worked with me on this project for months to, to beat it into shape. And we did. And then when I turned that completed manuscript into Joshua to this is my agent to look at, he was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You completely fixed it. And that's that's how it came to be with tour.com. And what was so incredible about that experience is that not only did I realize that, you know, I had it in me all along, um, but that it really leveled my writing up. And uh, I think in the end, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Justin Landon is really one of the most gifted editors uh, in working in the genre. Unfortunately, he's not working in the genre currently, but hopefully he'll come back to it. Um, and that really, when you have that kind of a partnership, you can, you can do amazing things. Early reviews are good for it uh, before it drops here uh, this February. What were some of the challenges with uh, tackling the novella length as opposed to the novel length or short story that you're typically known for, Mike? Yeah, I actually really like the length. Um, I um, One of the things I think I have a tendency to do is overwrite. Uh, there's the great George Bernard Shaw quote. I think it's George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, forgive me, mother, for writing a long letter for I didn't have the time to write a short one, um, is that I have a tendency when sort of left to my own devices to overwrite. I... Um, I, I will tell, not show. I will wax eloquently in exposition. And some of this has to do with the fact that some writers I love, like China Mieville, are big into that style, that prose style. But the difference is, is that he can pull it off and I can't. I'm no China Mieville. And the novella length really forces you to make sure that every single word stands for itself and all the mules are hauling wood. Um, and, you know, it really helps me to, to focus in on, on, on the, on the, Three big elements of a story, world building, plot and character, and making sure that that every that all of that is high speed, low drag and wind tunnel tested. I really do like the, the length. And uh, I also think that um, thanks to efforts like Tor.com and uh, other non-traditional publishing efforts like Serial Box, people are kind of getting turned on to that and realizing that that's a legitimate way to read and, and a legitimate way to consume great stories and so I'll, I will probably continue working in this discipline as long as um, there's options to do so. Yeah, I love the cover art uh, by Tommy Arnold. And it's cool how they're uh, rolling it out with the hardcover edition of the book as well. Yeah, it's my first time in hardcover. Well, actually, technically it's not. The Science Fiction Book Club has done special editions of the Shadow Ops books in hardcover. But this is the first time where I'm being released first in hardcover. And they didn't just do hardcover. They did these gorgeous, um, you know, leaf plates uh, on the insides of the, of the, of the cover. They did foil, you know, this reflective, shiny foil. They did embossed lettering. Like it's such a gorgeous book completely apart from, from even the cover art and the, uh, and the writing. I just mean the, the production design is amazing. I'm so thrilled with it. So one of the big eye, eye catching things about the cover art is the woman on the, uh, cover. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that grim-faced uh, lady on the cover? <laughs> yeah, her name is uh, Helwaz Factor. Um, she was originally the Fractured Girl, was what the title of the book was, but Tor wisely said every book in the world has the word girl in the title. Mm. So, and in fact, there's that famous picture where someone's at like a, a bookstore and, and, and on the bestseller shelf, every book has the word girl in it. And uh, they also said that they felt that it robbed her of agency, calling her a girl, because she is 16, but she's kind of a badass and she's taking on the whole world. So uh, they they pushed the title change and they were right to do so, I think. Um, she So in this world, um, the emperor, the divine emperor, has drawn a veil between our world and hell and shut the devils into hell and kept them from penetrating into our world. And wizards, to use magic, can reach beyond that veil to channel the natural elements that exist in hell. But if they are not careful, they can become doorways, and the portal opens in their eye, and the devil comes through um, and invades from hell into our own world. So a religious order called the Order has risen up to prevent that from happening, and their whole motto is suffer no wizard to live. And they, if they th- even sniff wizardry, whether they're right or not, they will kill you, they will kill your family, they will burn your village to the ground, they will leave no two stones standing on top of one another. They call that a knitting, meaning that they're knitting the rent in the veil. And uh, Helwaz is a, little, a village girl who grows up and is like, this is a really shitty way to live. Um, I don't like this. And she, you know, intervenes. But just because the order is draconian doesn't mean they're wrong. And, uh, you know, wackiness ensues. Um, Helwaz is an amazing, amazing young woman. And Writing her has been one of the best growth experiences of my life. I think second only to writing Wilma Mankiller, who's sort of the supporting but character, but really protagonist of Siege Line, which is the last military book I wrote, military fantasy book I wrote. She's just an incredible young woman, and I kind of feel terrible at the ringer. <laughs> the ringer I put her through, not just in this book, but it gets even worse in The Queen of Crows. So I beat up on this poor girl. I really do. You mentioned something about... Uh, armor before uh, name is the armored saint so um i wonder if in the amazon description of the book uh it says arcane war machines which sounds uh, like a fucking cool ass metal band but also, <laughs> also is that related to the armor or is that yeah so? yeah so the book has armor in it <laughs> ah, yeah <laughs> spoiler and a saint <laughs> no, um, it's it's not a spoiler. I can, I can totally talk. You can tell from the cover. Um, so people always look at the cover and they're like, "Why is that armor she's in eight sizes too large?" Um, because it's not armor; it's power armor. Um, she's in a. Uh, this is essentially a mecha book. Um, mm. in a in a in a, a weird way. I mean, I certainly wouldn't read it expecting that you're going to have a Gundam experience. Um, but there is absolutely um, a medieval war machine that uh, is driven in in the story. And that's uh, what you're getting a glimpse of on the cover. Uh, a lot of people have also been looking at the cover and telling me that they see glimpses of Warhammer 40K uh, mm. in that look. Um, just like when people looked at my military fantasy stuff and they were like, you know, sometimes I feel like you're influenced by the X-Men. And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and it's the same thing true here. Um, it absolutely is. The, the book is, in a lot of ways, a love letter to the universe of Warhammer 40K and the kind of um, hopeless, bleak tone of that world that Games Workshop has been able to capture so effortlessly. So you're definitely uh, seeing tones of that here. Yeah, that's where Grimdark, the name came from, was Warhammer uh, uh, originally. The grim, the grim dark of uh, 
Space. Space or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that that was the origin of the of the term. That's fantastic. Well, great. I mean, that universe, I love that mm-hmm. universe. Love it, love it, love it. And in fact, I've been in negotiations with Black Library, which is the fiction wing of that universe, to write for them twice now. Um, mm-hmm. I've done rounds with them. Unfortunately, we just can't agree on um, contract terms that I can that I can live with. But uh, man, do I love that universe. Love reading it. Just finished... Um, uh, Hereticus, the third book in the Dan Abnett Eisenhorn trilogy. Um, I just—it's uh, such an incredible um, uh, exercise in world building. And originally, my biggest complaint about that universe was that uh, you know you really only ever saw the combat. You never saw what life was like around the edges of that. You know what everyone was fighting for, what civilization looked like. And Dan Abnett really kind of started fixing that with the Eisenhorn trilogy. It's such a pleasure to read. Well, no doubt that Warhammer uh, was a, an influence there uh, for you. So uh, I guess what made you decide to tackle the darker tone of, of fantasy? Why not just the more traditional? Why did you decide to go with the, the Grimdark vibe? Of course, we are the Grimdark podcast. We just had Mark Lawrence on the show who talked about you, as a matter oh, of fact. <laughs> and uh, we've had... Oh, uh, I, mean, well, I love Mark Lawrence's work. Um, and, and actually, let's so let me turn it on its head and talk about Mark Lawrence. So he's a great example. Look... Um, because the world is awful, guys. Uh, you know, we live in a really dark time. Um, we live in a dark world. Um, and no one, no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall in the United States or which side of the political spectrum you fall on in the UK, where Mark is from, can look at what's going on um, in international affairs, in, in how people's um, lifespans are being affected in education and healthcare, and anything and, and say, things are great. No one can do that. I mean, things are great if you're a if you're a multi-billionaire already, but otherwise things are not great. They're the polar opposite of great. And reading about Frodo Baggins, you know, you know, who, whose greatest character flaw is excessive earnestness, um, you know, you know, hiding under a gorgeous tree while this beautifully rendered Nazgul is, you know, leaning over the branch. Let me don't get me wrong. I love Tolkien, but like enough. That's not the world I live in. It's not the. It's it's very difficult for me to feel transported when I read about that because the world. And remember, I've lived my entire life in the military and in law enforcement and intelligence. So all I see are horrible, horrible people doing horrible, horrible things and good people getting hurt. So when I read fantasy, when I read science fiction, and I want to be transported, I want to feel like this experience is real. I need that experience to reflect my world enough to feel real. And Mark does that, you know, um, Jorg Ankrath is a horrible person. He's a horrible, but he's a hard, but he came by being horrible. Honestly, he came by being horrible the same way we all do. Right. When we do horrible things because he's been hard done by life and he's reacting to that. You know, Jorg isn't a bad person. He's a coping mechanism. That's Mark's brilliance is capturing that and making it feel real and allowing you to be repelled by the things Jorg does and love him and want him to succeed at the same time. It's like what George, uh, like what George R. R. Martin does with Jamie Lannister, where you know you see him push a kid out a window and, and bang his sister in the first book, and by the second book, you're really upset that he got his hand cut off. Um, so uh, obviously I'm a guy who doesn't care much about spoilers because they've ruined everything. <laughs> um, no! But, 1996, uh, I so, spoiler. I get so sick of like spoiler knots. That you're, <laughs> spoiler! <laughs> Can I just speak for five seconds? Um, so, yeah, uh, that's the kind of stuff I love. And if you read The Road um, by Cormac McCarthy, which I think is an amazing work of grimdark science fiction, that because it's you know very celebrated in the literary genre, 
is not considered a great work of grimdark science fiction, and it is. It's perhaps the greatest work of grimdark science fiction. Um, but it's so real because it feels because Cormac McCarthy is looking at the world as it is and reflecting it that way. Um, I think that maybe people of different generations want to be taken out of the world they're in. I don't want that. I want to be kept in the world I'm in and given tools to grapple with it. Um, and that's what Grimdark does for me. And no doubt with your real life experience, witnessing the grim realities of the world around us, no doubt that will add uh, to the realism with uh, the Armored Saint as it's lent to the realism with your past series, uh, the Shadow Ops series, which you have made your name for. Uh, it's the military fantasy. You got two trilogies. You got the first three and then there's a prequel trilogy that uh, followed up with that. Doesn't matter which uh, order you kind of read those in. It doesn't matter which order people read them in, but I prefer people read them in story chronology order. So read the prequel trilogy first. The first book is Gemini Cell, then go to Javelin Rain, then Siege Line, then Control Point, then Fortress Frontier, and then Breach Zone. Um, it also helps that I think that Gemini Cell is one of my strongest books, and I really want readers to pick me. Whereas uh, Control Point, which is my first published novel, is my first published novel, so it's my most flawed one. So I want uh, I want my readers to start where I'm kicking ass and be like, wow, I'll read anything Mike Cole writes. Ah. So when they hit the snags and control point, they're like, oh, well, I already like Mike Cole, so I'll keep going. <laughs> That's a good strategy. I, I like that. Yeah, I'm always thinking, man. I'm always thinking. <laughs> Could you tell us maybe a little bit about the Shadow Ops series for those who haven't heard about it? I mean, it's it's pretty fucking cool if, if uh, readers haven't had a chance to pick that up. But could you give us maybe a short elevator pitch and just a little bit about the Shadow Ops series to whet the appetites of our listeners a little bit? Yeah, I've got I've got a great elevator pitch. I have two of them. The first is the cover quote that Peter V. Brett, who is another amazing grimdark author. He would he will choke me whenever I'd say his stuff is grimdark. It's grimdark. <laughs> Read it. Love it. His first book is The Warded Man. Uh, in the UK, it's The Painted Man. Um, but please, uh, and full disclosure, he is my best friend in the world. Uh, but uh, I, even if we hated each other, I would still say he's the second coming of Tolkien because he is. He's amazing. Ah. Um, but his cover quote is uh, Black Hawks Down meets the X-Men, which I think is great. Um, and then I always say it's Harry Potter if Harry Potter had joined the Navy SEALs instead of going to Hogwarts. <laughs> so, um, so picture uh, – so what it is, it's a really gritty, like down-in-the-weeds, tactical – fire team level um, modern combat like you would see in call of duty but um with sorcery and i've also i mean the book also has a social conscience the book is asking the question if magic were real and if the federal government no longer had a monopoly on that incredible power what would they do and of course what they would do is they would lock it down with red tape and they would um, make it boring make it regulated and then of course punish anybody uh, who attempted to use it outside of their supervision and control. And it's really exploring that classic question that we've been asking ourselves since 9-11, what will people give up in terms of freedom and self-actualization in order to feel safe? And, of course, it has fun things like, you know, a, an Apache longbow gunship going up against a hill giant. So <laughs> there's lots of reasons to like it, I think. And do you have plans to return to, the, I presume, to return to the Shadow Ops series? So I have a really, what I think is solid outline that picks up, three for three more books, that picks up after the end of Breach Zone. But um, I don't think that uh, the sales, at least right now, are going to justify another publisher making an offer on that. Of course, things may change depending on how, this is the thing with writing careers, is you can have an idea that's a really good idea. Um, and you'll hear lots of authors say this. And a publisher will say, you know, this is a great idea, but we just don't see the, the market for this right now. Urban fantasy in general, contemporary fantasy, is considered by publishers to be saturated, meaning that, you know, they don't see a lot of um, sales opportunity there. So it's difficult to sell stuff. But if an author's name and clout changes, 
they can get a lot more, they have a lot more negotiating leverage and uh, markets turn around. So I will say I have like a, a solid outline for a uh, or solid pitch for a, a new trilogy in that universe. Now's not the time to sell it, but uh, that may change in the future. And, and the work is already done. I could sit down and start writing it tomorrow if I needed to. If you have like real life experience as a military person and you can use these experiences to write the Shadow Op series, what elements do you use when you're writing uh, more traditional fantasy, considering you can't actually live in the fantasy world, uh, at least as far as I know, unless there's some mysterious way that I haven't <laughs> figured out yet. But Back of the closet. Uh, we've all done this. All of us nerds <laughs> have done this where we've opened the back of our closet after reading the line. Look for the portal, right? Um, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's a great question. Um, and, uh, and that is that, and it's exactly the question I had to ask myself uh, when I when I was trying to make this leap, right, is that, oh, my God, all my previous writing is authentic because I can leverage my military experience. Well, what am I going to do now when I don't have that right now? How do other writers do it? And so it kind of forced a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking about craft. And the thing that I settled on is that it's empathy, man. It really is, um, is that what makes a good writer in any genre? I don't care if you're writing Westerns. I don't care if you're writing literary fiction. I don't care if you're writing nonfiction. And by the way, I, my first nonfiction book, it's an ancient military history called Legion versus Phalanx, will be published by Osprey uh, in the fall. So I'm actually a historian now writing straight up nonfiction history. And even there, this applies if you're going to do it well. And that is empathy. It is the ability to step into the skin of another person who is nothing like you and who you may not even like or identify with and really, really consider, fundamentally consider how they live, what they want, you know, what life feels like to them. And that's super, super hard. The best example of this I can give is um, uh, in Gemini Cell, my fourth published novel, but the first one I'd like people to read if they're coming to my military fantasy stuff. I had to write a sex scene from the point of view of a woman. And uh, when I sat down to do that, and I'm 44 years old, I've been married, so uh, big shock, I've had sex before. Um, I know, everybody, does anybody want to take a second, sit down? Um, but uh, Can't talk but, about um, that. Uh, I, I never had sex as a woman, and, and to my great humiliation, I never really thought about it, how women can experience sex. Like, obviously, you know, you understand the basic physicality of it, but I didn't think about how women, really how women experience it. What does it feel like in detail? Where does it feel like that? You know, what is it emotionally like in detail? And I was really pissed at myself because how freaking selfish and boxed off and and like and and I know that and, and then the other realization, which makes me even more sympathetic to the Me Too movement, is that most men are like this. You don't think about it. It's like driving a car. You, you, you sit down, you turn the key, the car goes. Well, I guess everything's working. Right. You know. So really that experience, and God, was it awkward and embarrassing having to sit down with women and interview them to talk in detail so I could get this scene right. But I did it, and it was such an incredible growth experience. And uh, I actually was one of these times where I feel like writing made me a better person because it forced me to like really, really think about how I'm in the world and how other people are in the world. And the scene, I think, came off okay. My, my editor at Ace Rock, who edit, edited it, is a woman. And I was really lucky to have Carrie Vaughn, who is uh, a fantasy and science fiction author herself, read it for me and sort of let me know that I got it, what she felt I had gotten it right. So that same set of skills was what I continued to develop with The Armored Saint, is that uh, the trick for me was less the world building. The Armored Saint world is loosely based on Merovingian um, Europe, but more so the experience of, all right, I have to write 
a 16-year-old gay girl. How am I going to do that? And there's only one way you can do that. You need to think about what that experience is like for other people. And that means talking to people. It means asking a lot of questions. It means doing a lot of reading. It means being open to questioning your own assumptions. Um, and that empathy, I really, really think, is the key to good writing, not just in fantasy, but in any genre whatsoever. That's some solid pointers for uh, growth in your writing process, and it's cool to see you continuing to uh, evolve in your process as you uh, continue with uh, each book, Mike. It's very cool. Now, as far as the uh, the series goes with the new trilogy, um, how far have you written into the series? So The Queen of Crows, which is the sequel, the cover was just released on the Bar uh, Barnes & Noble Science Fiction and Fantasy blog. Um, and I think it's up on Amazon and Goodreads if you want. It's another Tommy Arnold cover. It's amazing. That book is done. I just completed the edit letter uh, with Lee Harris at Tor.com and sent that back. You may have another round of edits, but that book is done, done, done. The uh, third book in the trilogy, The Killing Light, is um, the outlined. It's just an outline. No prose has been written. I really wanted to wait until I finished my edits going back and forth with Lee, just in case he made me make a change in Queen of Crows that would impact the next book before I start writing prose on the next book. But we have an outline, um, which for me, uh, a, a lot of writers are pantsers. You know, they sort of sit down and write. I'm not. I'm an architect, a plotter. I write huge and very detailed outlines before even beginning to write. So a lot of the writing time that goes into making a book is the outline. So just want listeners to know that the existence of a completed outline does mean that a lot of the work is already done. And hopefully Lee will come back with these edits to me and say, you know, this is good. If he doesn't, we'll do another round. But then I'll be starting, who knows, maybe even this weekend on The Killing Light. Yeah, I think I read you have up to 150-page outlines sometimes for your books. Yep, yep. Yeah, I write the book before I write the book. And I really recommend that. I understand that every writer is different, but whenever new writers ask me um, how to go about writing, I always say outline, 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 because I really feel like it helps your prose to know where you're going. I feel like it prevents you from having to do things like throw out half the book because you realize it suddenly doesn't work. Um, and I just, I just, I couldn't write any other way. Um, another thing about writing, this is maybe something we've never really talked about on the show. Uh, you know, writing is a very kind of sedentary uh thing to do and maybe lots of people who are writers uh, may have bad eating habits or aren't very good at maintaining a active lifestyle um you're pretty jacked kind of dude i think <laughs> so what advice could you give for writers who you know maybe because if, if if you're not in good health it affects your brain obviously so uh, yeah i mean what do you so think Look, I am obviously pro-fitness. For me, fitness was a job requirement. When I was doing um, patrol with the Coast Guard, I was um, in the Coast Guard, I did uh, search and rescue and law enforcement. So you never know when you, first of all, you're going out there in the winter in a dry suit with body armor and a gun and a radio and a rad detective, rad pager and like all this other gear. And then you may have to wrestle an idiot on top of that, right? Because someone's uh, creating a problem. So, you know, you just being out of shape is not an option. Um, plus you may have to pull somebody out of the water who may weigh more than you. So, you know, it's a job requirement to be in good physical shape. And then when I got out of the guard, I, you know, I maintained that, but I also want to say to people who are out of shape, um, and who are not for whom health, they either have health problems or struggles. Uh, health is not a priority. There are plenty of examples of writers. Um, you know, uh, George R. R. Martin famously gave the finger to people who have been concerned about his health. I don't think you need to be in great shape to be a writer. I think that there are plenty of people who are in 
poor shape, physical shape, that are great riders. Um, but I do think that, for me at least, physical fitness has been really, really rewarding. It's been rewarding in terms of my energy levels. It's been rewarding in terms of the opportunities and options that's opened in my life. Um, so I really do encourage people to, um, to do what they can, you know, uh, both in terms of dieting and exercise. But I also don't want people to think, I don't want pe- someone listening to this podcast who may be overweight, who may not be healthy, thinking, oh, you know, I, it's really going to impact my writing. Absolutely not. You can have poor health. You can, and I know lots of people out there struggle with disabilities, um, and there's no reason why these things need to affect your writing. But if you are able to, um, I do encourage people to um, to really tackle it and to put in the work to uh, to get in shape because uh, it's just really rewarding. It's 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 made my life a lot better, and I'd love to share that with other people. There's the the old saying that a lot of people say, uh, you know, ass in chair uh, is important for writing. And yeah, I always hear that. So people say, Oh, you know, uh, I'm having trouble writing. Like, what should I do? And they're always like ass in chair and write. But what happens with that is I think a lot of temporary energy boosting elements, because if you're sitting and writing for an extended period of time, three, four hours, which, you know, some people do, they tend to rely on caffeine heavily or even nicotine or, other <laughs> hallucinogens <laughs> of whatever sort um and the, and sugar is a big thing so for me personally as a writer uh i kind of struggle with that and kind of figuring out a better balance of you know how i can be comfortable all i can tell you is what i do um and what i do is i am an i am ass in chair you have to be there's just no yeah. way around it um, in fact, I struggle with distraction. I call it being Twitter-pated because I've built up such a big um, social media following and I have such a small social life. I have very few friends, physical friends that are around me. Um, we'll be your friend, you know, Michael. I'm a, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, but you're not here to hang oh, with. That's right. So, okay. like, um, but I'm serious. Like, I don't have people I can really go get a drink with. Peter Brett is my best friend and he's local, but you know, he's got kids, he's got a family. Mm -hmm. He can't be hanging out with me every five minutes. Um, so I'm sort of one of the last of my friends who's not married and doesn't have kids. So, you know, it's, I spend most of my time on social media. That's really how I get my social time. So it's really easy for me when the writing gets tough to turn to Twitter. And I really struggle with that. And I find myself having to like go to the bar to write and leave my phone at home to prevent myself from looking at it. Um, you know, uh, challenge myself. So I do simple things, Phil. Like, for example, I drink tons of caffeine. I drink mm. way more coffee than is, you know, medically advisable. <laughs> um, but I just don't put sugar in it. And I put mm. skim milk in it. And it tastes like Trek. And I drink it anyway because I need the um, – dude, I love sugar. I have a huge sweet tooth. But when I get done with this podcast, I will go to Hamilton's, which is the local bar uh, near here. And I will plop down at the uh, bar with my laptop to write, and I will order uh, an oatmeal, plain oatmeal with, you know, maybe I'll put like dried cranberries in it or something. I'll have a side of bacon so I can have something that tastes good. Um, And bacon is not, you know, a few strips of bacon is not going to kill you. It's not horrible. And I'll have coffee with skim milk and no sugar. And it's a compromise, right? It's, it's, that's, no one would dare to call that a healthy meal, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also not awful. And at some time today, I will, uh, you know, if you, I will run through Prospect Park and I'll do hills and I'll spend about an hour working out. So today after this podcast, I'll say I'll get three to four hours of writing uh, slash – actually, it'll be editing time today because I'm working on copy edits for Legion versus Phalanx while I wait for Lee to get back to me on the Queen of Crows. But I'll get my hour of exercise in and I will eat reasonably healthy. 
And I think that if you do that, and mind you, I understand that you have listeners out there that are struggling with with um, disabilities, and that they are limited in that capacity. And uh, I don't want to I, I I don't want to shut them out of what I'm saying. I just don't know enough about how, you know, I know there are different kinds of options for those, for people who struggle with those challenges. So I just don't want to sound like I'm not considering that, right? The only world I have known is the one of, a, of an able-bodied person. So of course, that's the only thing I can address here. I think that if you, if you are able-bodied and, and that's what you do, that, those moderate common sense things, you're going to put in your half hour to hour of exercise a day. You're going to make not crazy dieting choices. You're not going on the Atkins diet. You're not doing the whole 30. You're just you know, little things. I'm not putting sugar in my coffee. Then I think, you know, you'll, your body will respond to a, to a degree, um, that's, you know, reasonable. And, um, and I think you'll, you'll do pretty well. I drink shitloads of coffee also. I don't usually put sugar in it. Like I used to go to Starbucks and get froca maca chocolate. Fucking Not all day I drink those things. But these days I don't really do that. Um, so I'm getting better. Are you working um, out? Well, I used to do yoga. Um, Yoga's awesome. Yoga's that helped good. a lot. Um, yeah. But I don't know. These days, I'm kind of shifting more towards a lot of tabletop gaming. So I'm sitting on my ass a lot. And, I love uh, tabletop gaming. And I actually wanted to segue into that. And I ask you oh, about wait, wait, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we get to that, we're nerds, right? So yeah. If you need exercise then pick a nerd exercise. And there are two great ones that are hugely popular in Japan where you live. The first one is kendo, and the second one is western fencing. Japanese mm. people love both. Both are, you will find gyms everywhere in Yokohama. They are wildly cardio-intensive. They are cool as shit. Mm. They are fun, and they are nerd-friendly. They are sword-fighting. Mm. So that is it. Um, they are also expensive as hell. But never forget I said that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, that was one of the ways I did it, man. I'll tell you something. You, you know, you can go to an hour-long kendo practice or an hour-long, you know, fencing practice in your neighborhood. Um, and, you know, you rent a locker at the gym. You leave your gear there. You come home, take a shower. You're good. Get, get right back to whatever. I know you can fit that in. Um, yeah. And uh, that is awesome exercise. And then if we ever meet up again, we can do a match. <laughs> and you can beat the holy... <laughs> dog piss shit out of me i don't know about that i'm 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 44 years old and out of practice yeah let's talk a little bit about tabletop stuff since you're you're pretty hardcore into that also um dungeons and dragons is is a common thread we see pop up a a bunch uh, amongst a lot of writers we've had on the show uh mark lawrence who we just talked to um steven erickson uh, r scott baker uh, several others um, have talked about their Dungeons and Dragons experiences and how that kind of led them into the fantasy realm, so to speak. Um, so you're actually a real life warrior. Um, so I'm I'm curious: Do you play a fighter character when you play, or do you like to pa- paladins? <laughs> okay. Only paladins, which is funny because I mean, look, I've made no bones about how I feel in the Trump era. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take your podcast into a political zone, but prior to Trump's election and the current political situation in the United States, you have to remember that I really did consider myself a holy warrior. I really thought that what I did in the Coast Guard and in the intelligence services and um, in law enforcement was a sacred calling and that I was representing, you know, I, I, I wasn't blind to the to the moral failings and the moral um, conundrums that armed service 
raised. But overall, I felt like I was literally doing good work and that I was um, saving people that needed to be saved and stopping people that needed to be stopped. And that absolutely reflected in D&D. I did play paladins and I was always that paladin in the party that everybody wants to beat the shit out of. (laughs) You know, he makes every decision impossible because he layers it with these um, moral questions, you know, choices, which are just exhausting and impossible to keep up with. And then, of course, now um, I'm still in law enforcement, but um, I really do feel like a sucker. I feel like a chump. And I feel like everything that I thought I was doing was really a lie and that it was, um, uh, you know, I was really serving these like twisted, selfish, you know, either corporate interests or, you know, just people who didn't really believe in what they said they believed and that I bought it like it was on sale. And now after all these years of laboring for it, I have been (laughs) I've been wrong. You know, I was an idiot. And that's actually coming out on the gaming table. I don't want to play paladins right now. Um, I really don't. Uh, I want to play fighters. Um, and I, I mean, I've always been a fighter, but it's also kind of liberating in a way because you can do different things with a magic user. And of course, I'm using first edition D&D terms just because that's what I grew up with. Hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, in 5e classes are different, but it's liberating to play a thief. Um, it's liberating to like have to like think about a situation differently. And this also makes you grow as a writer. I keep coming hmm. back to this is that it's forcing you to consider how you would solve a problem from a completely different angle. So it's one good thing I'm taking out of the, the kind of the, the, the hard time I'm having with the shift in American politics right now. Well, I think D and D has always kind of been an escapism of some form for people to deal with whatever aspect of life that is, you know, crushing them at the moment. So it's kind of uh, apropos to have issues with the world and kind of enact you know, use characters in different ways to escape from that for, for me it's less escape from that i like i've never been an escapist i know it doesn't make me feel better i know a lot of people talk about genre like that as it's a way to get away from the world i don't want to get away from the world i want to engage with the world um and i've always thought of gaming and science fiction and fantasy as a way to just consider it from a different angle it's a way to kind of shake the magic eight ball a little harder and get a different answer. Um, and I, I, I do want to make sure that that listeners know that that for me, because I want people to know that that's an option. Like D and D isn't a way for me to get away with the, get away from the world. D and D is a way for me to hit the world from a different angle. Do you have any current gaming habits? Oh God. So <laughs> fantasy, flight, fantasy flight games. Uh, I don't think they've ever made a bad game. Um, so all of their Star Wars stuff, um, Imperial Assault, Armada, X-Wing. I also play d and I play Warhammer um, Fantasy Roleplay. I know Cubicle 7 is supposed to be coming out with a fourth edition. I still play second edition. I'm also a really crunchy count, Hex Encounter tabletop wargamer. Um, so we're talking games like Pax Romana and the Great Battles of History series from GMT. These are the little ca- cardboard chits that you have to use a tweezer to move around. Um, you know, the game where the turns take you know, two hours for a single turn and like all the fun has been completely sucked out of it. Like it's so, it's so historically accurate and complicated. There's no joy to be had. Um, this is the kind of game I really like. Mm. And, uh, um, Oh, there's a really great company called Mantic M A N T I C. They have a game called dungeon saga, which is, um, a dungeon crawler in the tradition of gloomhaven or descent, but they're British made. They were kickstarted. I mean, it really is the, in my opinion, for a dungeon crawler, the perfect balance between, crunchy rules that feel realistic and um, fast and exciting gameplay. It's minis based. I can't recommend it enough. I have all the expansions. How do you feel about uh, legacy games these days? You mentioned Gloomhaven, like uh, kind of tabletop games, but permanently damaging the game or destroying aspects of the game. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, games have gotten really expensive. Um, and I don't have any kids and, you know, I have like three different income streams so I can do it, but I do kind of like look around at the wider gaming community and I'm like, really? <laughs> um, you know, and I, I do feel that like, you know, if you're going to plunk down, how much is Gloomhaven? 70 bucks, a hundred bucks. Yeah. It's like, like over, it's over a hundred bucks right now. Yeah. I really feel like if you're plunking down that kind of money, you should be able to keep that game forever. Yeah. I have, uh, I've been playing pandemic legacy, um, which is a, pandemic game and that's the closest experience i have to um kind of dealing with the horrors of the real world and it's actually got me more interested in disease and i've actually kind of studied more about real diseases and plagues throughout history and stuff based on that game so uh, i always think gaming is a cool way to even get you more interested in history or other aspects of the world it's just another way to tell a story, man. That's all it is. Um, that's all reading is. It's all TV is. It's all the same thing. It's human beings interacting with story. I actually um, had a game uh, that uh, Dave Robeson from the um, Roundtable podcast brought to me that he, that he had worked on to design for my Shadow Ops books. And I mm. took that design and I completely revamped it. And then I sold it to Nocturnal Entertainment, which was a company run by Stuart Wack. He's the guy that did Vampire the Masquerade. He also founded White Wolf, if you've heard of oh, this company. Cool. Yeah. Um, and that was sold. It was in development. They were sculpting the minis and he died suddenly and unexpectedly a freak thing. Poor guy, young guy, kids. So of course they canceled the project. And now I'm currently in negotiations with a company called everything Epic, which is a game company that has the license to big uh, trouble in little China and oh, yeah. Rambo. The guy who runs that, this guy, Chris Vitalis, um, he really is one of the most gifted and passionate game designers I've ever met. He's an amazing man. So hopefully we'll be getting to work together. Uh, we'll see. We're still talking about it um, to do a, a Shadow Ops tabletop game. Wow, awesome. So, yeah, possible Shadow Ops tabletop game in the works. Any other comics or tie-ins or anything to go with the, your properties that you have? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. There's, so, so, there's so much. So you know about the two trilogies for Shadow Ops. You know about Sacred Throne. You now know about Legion versus Phalanx, which is my first foray into history. Um, hopefully more TV stuff in the future. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that game. I'm also I have done a comics pitch that I'm working with my agent on. So we'll see if uh, we can get that over the transom. My goal is to have so much work to do that I never see the sun again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil can teach you all about that because he's deathly pale and rarely. Sleeps. Yeah, I'm a vampire. <laughs> I'm a vampire. It's another reason to grow the beard back, Phil, to cover mm. some of the pal- pallor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pallid. <laughs> Poor Phil. Uh, Phil, I hope you know that we're just messing with you <laughs> and that we are her friends. Oh, yeah. I know. It's, uh, you know, I like to make fun of people who have beards. So that's my <laughs> thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly called the sea captain around, around the spot. <laughs> well, I think we can uh, just about wrap up the show. We like to wrap up usually with a little game ourselves because we're, we're, we're into games here, me and Phil. Uh, Phil, are you down with the 30-second geek out? Or what did you have any – is that what you wanted to do? Is that, yeah, okay. let's do that. Okay. So this game is called the 30 Second Geek Out. And what we do is basically set a timer for 30 seconds. We give you a topic and then you rant about the topic for as much as you can in 30 seconds. Let's go with some topics. So we'll just throw a topic at you and then just rant on it for 30 seconds. Okay. So first topic is your uh, good buddy, Peter V. Brett. Rant on him for 30 seconds. 
Peter V. Brett and I have been friends since I played at a battle of the bands at his high school uh, about 27 million years ago. We then ran into each other in college. Um, I think we first bonded on the fact that we both had long hair at the time. Of course, he had the pinstripe black hair. He looked like Ian Asprey from The Cult, where I had, um, you know, like Shirley Temple ringlets, which made me look like, I'm sorry to say, a kind of masculine Shirley Temple. Um, we hit it off right away. We played... Um, D and D together all throughout college. Uh, he was always. God damn it! Yeah. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. It's jarring. We usually have lots of god damn it's on this part yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um. So that's Peter V. Brett. Yeah. So uh, let's. That's all do you. Have, that's all you can say about it. No more. That's all you can say. Yeah. <laughs> that's Never it. speak about it. <laughs> All right, let's go to another topic. Let's do 30 seconds on J.R.R. Tolkien, one of your childhood favorites. 30 seconds, go. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm too close to the topic to ever really properly criticize him or think about his work in a real way because he was so influential on my developing development as an adult and on my childhood. Um, it's funny, when I read him now, he kind of doesn't stand up because of this like Lovecraftian, waxing, overly eloquent in description of the side of a hill or something. Like The story doesn't move the way it used to. But also, as a sort of wannabe academic who's writing history... God, no! <laughs> <laughs> we should call it 30-second jar the fuck out of our guests. 30-second frustration. Uh I was really curious too. I was waiting to find out more. I guess you'll have to come back on the show again and want we'll to find out <laughs> more about Tolkien. when the second book comes out. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. All right. Next topic. Let's talk about Hunted, the TV show. Okay. Thirty seconds. Go. So Hunted was incredible. Um, look, I had never wanted to be on TV. I'd never tried, even thought that it was possible, let alone primetime network TV, let alone in a having a, a pretty major role on the show. Um, but apparently. When CBS decided to do the show, they went out looking for the two kinds of manhunters that are in the field. One is fugitive recovery, which is sort of the law enforcement side of it. And one is counterterrorism targeting, which is what I did, which is the intelligence side of it. And both use the same basic skills. It's just that fugitive recovery agents go, you know, get people who have skipped out on warrants. Uh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is fun. <laughs> And so, um, and hunted. I can be so interesting if I have enough to do. <laughs> hunted. We're waiting to see on uh, the next season, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. Check, let's do a few. Let's do a few. Okay. A few more. Right. Let's see. Let's do competitive sword fighting. Since you were Kendo Ka, is that what you call it? Kendo Ka. Yeah. Yeah. And All I right. was also a fencer, or also I am a fencer. Okay. Let's talk about competitive sword fighting for thirty and no more seconds. Ready? Go. So a lot of people don't know that I was a kendoka, a competitive uh, kendo player for many, many years. I, I took gold, I believe, at the William & Mary Invitational. I took silver at the Greater Northeast U.S. Championships, and then I took bronze in a bunch of other local tournaments. I actually wound up in a Korean um, dojang as opposed to a dojo, where they call it kumdo. It's the same exact sport, or just because of relationships between Korea and Japan, they, they give it a different name. But it was a huge part of my life for many years. and It was an amazing kind of fusion of um, having to develop myself spiritually as well. Uh, oh. <laughs> I'd hit Phil with a stick. Probably hit me with a stick. Uh, friend, hey, let me tell you something. I've actually been hit in the head with kendo sticks. 
Not surprised. Many, many times. Um, I haven't really talked about this on the show, but I used to do pro wrestling and I used to do lots of hardcore stuff. And I was kind of the guy that people love to see me get the shit beat out of me. So uh, a lot of times I got hit with uh, stuff and kendo stick was one of them. And it fucking hurts incredibly. Okay, so let's do one more. And last one. Hey, hey, let's talk about the sacred coal box set. Okay. 30 seconds ago. So uh, there's this uh, friend of mine on Twitter, a guy who goes under the handle Hearn, H-E-R-N-E, who's a really gifted Photoshop guy. Um, We've never met in person, but he really is, you know, one of the better. I hope he's a professional graphic designer because he certainly has the chops. But, you know, I'm sort of excessively earnest and not a lot of fun. And um, that's become a cause celebre on Twitter. I think a lot of people in genre love poking fun at me about that. So he's taken to photoshopping, re-photoshopping covers of my books with my face on them. But it's always like this super embarrassing rendition of my face like some picture that like someone took and tagged me on facebook where i'm not like real thrilled with how i look and then puts me in my own covers and changes the title to cole and my publisher is now glommed onto it and like is encouraging him and egging him on so like every time i log on to twitter there's definitely like a, a pucker factor where i'm like terrified of what's gonna of what am i what is awaiting me when i uh when i log on there he's done um the armored coal the Queen of Coal, the Killing Coal, and then put them all together in a box set, uh, and it all looks completely like legit, realistic, like these are real books. And my publisher is absolutely thrilled. So I'm waiting for uh, you know uh, for these things to actually be made at some point. Um, uh, but I know I've never met the guy. I'm uh, I'm kind of terrified about <laughs> about that eventual meeting and what it will be like. And, and we surely have gone past 30 seconds here. Yes, we have. Yeah, we get, yeah. We just uh, we let you go on that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, at Mike Cole is your Twitter handle. Yes, but you have to spell it uh, M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E, at Mike Cole. Yeah. Mike with a Y. Also on Facebook and Instagram, MikeCole.com is the website as well for everybody who wants to find out everything regarding to Mike Cole. Uh, be sure to pick up a copy of The Armored Saint, book one of the Sacred Throne trilogy, available now. We've got the link to the book in the show notes, so be sure to check out the show notes for um, everything we've talked about. And then, Mike, do you have any um, con appearances coming up um, in March or April? Oh, so many, so many. I'll be at Life, the Universe, and Everything in Utah um, in a couple of weeks. Following that, I will be at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, Washington. I'll be at the Tucson Festival of Books, also in the month of March. I will be at Dragon Con. I don't know what month that is. I will hopefully, I think it's September. I think I'm almost confirmed for Phoenix Comic Con, which is in May. Uh, I will, I'm, will be at New York Comic Con in October. So pretty much every Comic Con anywhere ever, I'll be there. And I'm very approachable. So if you're <laughs> someone who would like to shake my hand or get a signature or something, please just stop me in a hallway and say hi. Just look for the guy with the tats and the, and the beard, the looming. Yeah, look for the guy with the beard. <laughs> very, it, won't be, it won't be me. <laughs> what this means is that, no, if I just say look for the guy with the beard, then everybody's going to be going up to Pat Rothfuss. Mike Cole, hey. Yeah, we've got, we've got some... Um, some growing to do to catch up with Pat for that epic All of us. beardness. We made but it. Pat has some growing to do to catch up with ZZ Top. That's true. Mm. And ZZ Top has some growing to do to catch up with Gandalf. <laughs> and I think Gandalf, I think his beard uh, is, is the end. Yeah. That's a week. It's a week. <laughs> Very cool. Well, the Armored Saint is available. 
this February uh, on Amazon, so be sure to pick up a copy. Mike Cole, thank you so much for dropping by the show today. We appreciate your time, and best luck to you with the new series and everything that you have going on, and we do hope that uh, maybe you'll have a chance to drop back by at some point and say hi, maybe when the next book comes out, but we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast, available online at thegrimtidingspodcast.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction, and for daily updates on all things Grimdark, be sure to drop by our Facebook group at GrimDarkFiction Readers and Writers. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.